Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer supplication, and I appreciate your faithfulness in leading us in singing praises to the Lord on, on each Sunday. And as usual, thank you, Amy, for your part in doing such a beautiful job in, in music there. And, and Brother Courtney Holt on the drum, we always appreciate his rhythm over there, and, uh, and that adds to it. And I appreciate everybody just jumping in and just singing. And I love to hear God's people singing and praising the Lord. And I just think how sweet it is to my ears, what it must sound like to the Lord as it rises up in unison with churches all across the land, all around the world, in different languages and cultures, praising the Lord and singing praises to His name. It's our sacrifice of praise that we offer to the Lord that brings such pleasure to Him. And I'm glad to be a part of it. I don't have that good of a voice, but I make a joyful noise, and I'm sure it reaches heaven, uh, I think. But anyway, thank you, thank you. And you know, I love that song, Speak, O Lord. Now, what a humbling and yet thoughtful song when you think about the importance and the centrality of the Word of God to why we gather on Sundays. And you know, I was thinking that even before we, the preachers, come to the pulpit, our people have already been introduced to and fed the Word by faithful, dedicated teachers. And I want each and every one of you who have committed to teaching in our church here at Cornerstone and the Christian growth groups, you know, uh, those of you that teach the children, God bless you, you know, and, and teaching our, our young adults, our young single adults, uh, our, our young married adults, our older adults. I, I just appreciate all the teachers of our, our church and, and, and their faithfulness to open up the Word of God. And to, and to me, that just prepares the way. Hallelujah. So you're getting a good diet of the Word of God. I tell you that here, here at Cornerstone. And on that Word, let's turn to the Word. Second Peter, we're walking through this uh, epistle of the Apostle Peter, having finished 1 Peter, and uh, we got into 1 Peter, I mean 2 Peter chapter 1 in the message I preached previously. And you know, I can't help but notice that in the singing, Pastor Mark, we seem to have a heavenly theme. You know, focusing our attention on our eternal home, our glorious home, in the presence of the Lord. And, and you know, and I've challenged each and every one of us each Sunday when I'm preaching to just be mindful every day that in order to fulfill this, this celestial calling that is upon our lives, that we must, we must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency, really, to, to be able to truly embrace our heavenly citizenship and it's important because I think so many Christians walk through life here on this earth and and almost a blind or oblivious to who they really are and 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 their true identity as children of God as as ultimately citizens of the kingdom of heaven and sometimes Christians live as if this is it as if you got to make you know the most of this time we only go around once got to go for the gusto start to sound like a beer commercial now but but you know, that's not it. This is not it. This is just a very short segment in the scheme of eternity. Our real home is in heaven, amen? So don't get too attached. But anyway, that's another sermon at another time. Read with me there. We're beginning in ch uh, chapter 1 of 2 Peter, verse 5. As Peter continues to address those, er those churches in, in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, these new churches, if you will, many new believers... 
He says there in verse 5, But also for this very reason, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brother, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and is forgotten that he, has, he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and I want to take you back to verse 5 as we begin the message this morning. And, and I want to draw your attention to the words Peter says there right out of the gate. For also, but also for this very reason. For what very reason? And I drew a little arrow in my scripture, my Bible. It's just pointing back up to verse 1 through 4. The previous message that I preached. I'm not going to re-preach it and I'm not going to reread those verses. I'm just going to simply capsulize what Peter is talking about. He says, for, for this reason. What reason? For the reason that as the followers of Christ, as the children of God, we have unimaginable blessings that God has given to us. And in those verses previously, Peter pointed out that one of the blessings is the fact that everything that you and I need to successfully live the Christian life, God has provided. He's not going to embark you on a journey for which He's not equipped you for. Everything you need to live the successful Christian life to fulfill all the purpose that God has set forth at the foundation of the world, for you, God has already provided it. You will not come up short. Not on God's side, I promise you that. Now on our side, that's a different matter. So, so many times we fail to, to utilize those resources and blessings that God gives us and therefore we fall short of the purposes that God has planned. So, so one of the things he's pointing back to, God has provided everything the believer needs to successfully live a godly life. And then also you may recall in those previous verses that Peter pointed out not only do we have all the provisions, but we have the precious promises of God. And aren't the promises of God precious? I mean, really. I'm not going to go through uh, uh, many of the promises, but my goodness, what wonderful, eternal, rock-solid, never-to-be-broken promises by the Creator of the universe, who's never broken a promise and, praise God, never will. So when he says, but also for this very reason, knowing that, knowing that as we go forth, the believer's response to the blessings of God ought to be what? We ought to diligently participate in God's sanctifying work. And that's what Peter is saying as he goes further in this verse, verse 5. He says, given all diligence. And Peter will come back to this very expression about diligence. Don't just do it half-heartedly. Don't just kind of do it lackadaisically. But with all diligence, add to your faith. It all starts with faith. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, It is impossible to please God without faith. For the one that comes to God must first believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So it all starts with faith. 
Building the Christian life, if you, if you will, living the Christian life starts with faith. And so Peter says, he says, start with faith and diligently participate in what God is doing in your life. So the believer, you and I, we must be dedicated to fully honoring the Lord with our lives. Now, Peter and I, I was reading in some of the commentaries, they make a distinction between the objective reality of our salvation and the subjective reality of our salvation. Let me explain. There, there's a part of our relationship with God that you and I had nothing to do with. It happened outside of us. In fact, the Bible tells us before the foundation of the world, God chose you. So we understand that. God predetermined who he was going to choose to be his children. And when God chooses you, ladies and gentlemen, God's going to get you. Okay? One way or the other, he's already got a plan. And, and not only has God chosen you, but listen, God has a plan in, in which he says, I'm sending my very only son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world to die for your sins. God has not only chosen you and me, he has also provided a way for the salvation of our sins. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't save yourself. I cannot save myself. I can't save anybody else. I can share the gospel with them. And if God has, has indeed chosen them, the power of the Holy Spirit will draw them to Jesus Christ. And they don't have to work out there. They don't have to work for their salvation because God has already taken care of their salvation. When Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago on that fateful day, giving his life for your life, he says, it is finished. And the price for the penalty of your sins and my sins were covered. Wouldn't it be great to go on a shopping spree, get to the cash register and be reaching for your credit card and thinking, oh my goodness, I think I've overextended my credit and that kind of thing. And the cash, cash, cashier looks at you and says, oh, uh, sir or ma'am, somebody's already paid for your whole excursion. Everything's paid for. Look at here, paid in full. Hallelujah. I'd have a conniption fit, probably turn around and go back and do some more shopping. But no, no. But, but when it comes to our salvation, objectively, God, the sovereign God of the universe, through the atoning blood of his only begotten son, the Lamb of God, has indeed done the work of salvation. And so we, we accept that by faith and we celebrate that. But then in response, here's where the subjective nature of our salvation comes in. What is your response to what God has done for you? What is your response to the awesome grace of God, the amazing grace of God, and the wonderful, costly gift of forgiveness that His Son's blood has bought for you and me? Now, that brings us to the part where we participate in what's the, the subjective part of it, and that's what we call sanctification. In other words, sanctification is a process. And God is working in us. We are cooperating with God as he takes us from that very early form of being a brand new believer and by the power of his Holy Spirit, using the word of God, God begins to shape and to transform and to mold and to make and to grow and to mature you and me into Christ's likeness. Now you can be very diligent about pursuing that process and participating with God and cooperating with God or you can be stubborn and hard-headed and distracted and selfish and say, oh, I'm saved, that's good enough. And so Peter is saying that, you know, add to your faith and then he's sharing virtues or characteristics or qualities that help to make us into the people that God's called us to be. Now, 
You remember I made reference to this, and I believe one of the other preachers did too, this passage in Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul picked up on the same theme of our part in the process that God has, sanctification, our part. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now listen to what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? He said, don't sit idly back and, and, and have, a, 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 have your faith like a stamped ticket and say, okay, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. I'm, on, I'm just going to go along for the ride now. He said, work out your salvation. And here's how it happens. He says, it is God who works in you to will and to do. You don't have to even be creative. All you got to do is be responsive. All you got to do is listen to God, pray and talk to Him, read His Word, let the Spirit of God nudge you. God will lead you to do everything He wants you to do. He will tell you in your heart, and your part is to obediently follow Him. The Lord Himself, God, will lead you to fulfill the purposes. Well, that's how we move through these virtues that Peter is going to be enumerating here for us, beginning in verse 5 and all the way down through verse 7. Resisting the temptation all along to become spiritually lazy. I'm going to tell you something. I grew up on a hard-working farm. It began with my granddaddy Coleman, who lived just a half a mile from us, and he was kind, he worked, I, I wish he had retired, but he didn't. And so every day when I wasn't in school, I was with my brothers and sisters and cousins and we worked that farm. And my granddaddy, his favorite passage or expression was, you know, idle hands or devil's workshop. Boy, if anything caused granddaddy Coleman to see red, it was us sitting around, you know, just sitting around. He couldn't stand it. He said, hey, isn't there something for you boys to be doing? Come on, come on with me. Pick up them buckets. Come on, we're going to go pick up rocks. Why, granddaddy? Because I said so. And we worked. And we worked hard. There's no room for laziness around my granddaddy Coleman. And so it was with my dad and my uncle too. So working hard. God's people ought to be hard working in our faith. Now mind you, we're not working for our salvation. We're working in response to our salvation and work hard at it. You hear what Paul, uh, Peter says? Be diligent, diligent to do, to do the things. Listen to what Martin Luther said, the great reformer. He said, they should prove their faith by their good works. Christians ought not be sitting idly back and just praising the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, I'm going to heaven. You know? No. He says, your faith ought to give evidence. And that comes through the works that you do in response to God's leading. You know the Apostle James and how he feels about this thing. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I came up with this brilliant expression. I want you to listen to it. You might want to even make a t-shirt. Living the Christian life is not casually drifting as on a, quote, lazy river but daily swimming against the mighty current of a godless society. 
God didn't give you a ticket to get on a raft and float down the river lazily through life and just enjoying the pleasures and what have you. Oh no. He threw you into a river that was flowing against the will of God. And he said, now swim in the opposite direction. The world's going this way towards hell. You swim in the opposite direction. You be determined. You're going to have to fight every day. You're going to have to have diligence. You're going to have to have perseverance. But listen, don't you give in. And that's what the Lord, is, that's what Peter's saying. Be diligent to add to your faith. And then he goes on to talk about, let's, let's look at those. These are qualities that, that, that bolster us and, 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 and strengthen us in our walk. Reassuring our salvation, ourselves of our salvation given freely by God. And that's important. We need to be diligent about doing the things that God calls us to do so that we might be strengthened in our faith. I, I like what Dr. John MacArthur said in his commentary. He said, saving faith is the ground in which the fruit of Christian sanctification grows. So our faith in Jesus Christ is very much like a, a, a land of a, a, a fertile soil. And out of that, out of our faith, there ought to be the, the fruit that, that, that comes up and the fruit of our faith are these virtues, these qualities that, that Peter has given us in these verses here. Grounding all of our virtues in this faith and trust in the Lord is how it really happens. And the first one he talks about is, it depends upon the translation that you have when he says, add to your faith virtue. Your translation may have a different word there. But the word virtue is also synonymous to moral excellence. In fact, the word in the classical Greek for virtue was spiritual or moral heroism. In other words, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you're diligent about it, then the Spirit of God working through your cooperation with God will cause you to be like a, a moral hero. Not afraid to take a stand on what is godly. Not afraid to stand up for your faith and your Christian convictions. Oh, oh to God that we had more moral heroes in Washington, D.C. Or on our Supreme Court bench. Or in Raleigh with our legislative. Or in the governor's mansion. Oh, to God that we had more moral heroes in our school systems and in our local government. Men and women of God who understand what it means to be a child of God. Who aren't afraid to stand up and say yes I believe the Bible it is the eternal word of God it is without error and I believe it's true and I base my life upon it our country suffers because there are many people calling themselves Christians who ashamedly are far from being moral heroes they compromise and they go with the flow and hence, there goes their witness. But then I'll move on to verse 6. In verse 5, he talks about, now to, to virtue, knowledge. Add knowledge to it. Now, granted, I got a lot of smart church members. A lot of, most of my church members are smarter than I am. And I'm, I'm proud of it. But, but I hate to burst your bubble, but he's not talking about that cognitive knowledge that we often pursue through Google and encyclopedias and things like that. He's not talking about that intellectual knowledge that you're packing your brain there. Oh, no, no, no. He's talking about the knowledge that comes only from God. Godly wisdom, godly knowledge. Listen to what the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, said in chapter 2 of Proverbs. He says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. 
For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This is what Peter's talking about. This is what happens when a person diligently pursues God with all of their heart, loves God's word, talks to the Lord in prayer, makes themselves open, has a, a dynamic faith walk with the Lord day after day. Let me tell you something. God's going to pour his wisdom into you. The kind of knowledge that this world needs. The kind of knowledge that will be the hope of humanity in Christ. That's what he's talking about there. This godly knowledge. I think about King Solomon and how the Lord so blessed him with this kind of knowledge that set him apart from all the monarchs of that era. I think about what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians there in um, chapter 4. Excuse me. I hate it when my fingers get sticky. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says in verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul understood that. This knowledge that Peter's talking about is God-given knowledge through our relationship with Jesus Christ. But we need to move along because there in verse 6 he talks about to knowledge add self-control. In other words, self-discipline. That's another thing that the Spirit of God does for you and me. It's impossible to live the Christian life and to be fruitful for God and to grow into mature as a believer if we're not willing to be self-disciplined or disciplined by the Spirit of God. And you understand, Peter's writing in a context in which he's also warning the people. That was one of the purposes of 2 Peter, was to warn the churches of the, of the, the imminent uh, appearance of many false prophets and teachers who were teaching all kinds of unbiblical things. And one of the things that characterized the lives of these false prophets and false teachers were, was the fact that their lives were typically undisciplined. They showed very little restraint. They were engaged in, in, in licentiousness and sensuality and sexual immorality. So that was a dead giveaway. That they were not true followers of Christ or leaders in the church. Then Peter's reminding the Christians that as you pursue God's purpose for your life, it's important that you allow the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, to help you to be self-disciplined, to be self-controlled. In fact, if you recall in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23, the Apostle Paul said, self-control is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you have to muster up and exercise at. It's something that God already does. If you are open to the filling of the Spirit of God, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And that's one of the virtues of a Christian's life that Peter says we ought to diligently pursue. That ought to be the fruit of our faith in the Lord. But then as we move on, he talks about to self-control, perseverance, or steadfastness. Having this, this, this attitude of steadfastness and, and sticking to it and, and seeing it through. I think about what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, in verses 3 and 4. He says, and, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. You see, so many times we want to take the easy path. 
So many times we want to pray and ask God, God, please don't let me have any problems. Don't let me have any trials. Lord, just make everything go smoothly for me. That's not biblical, folks. That's not the will of God. James says, count it a joy when you find yourself going through fiery trials because it's in those fiery trials that your faith is being exercised and you develop perseverance. And it's when you persevere through the storms. It's when you persevere through the trials and the hardships. It's when you hang on to God when it seems like everything else is going and God is developing and shaping and molding you into the man and into the woman that he wants you to be. That's where you acquire so many other wonderful qualities come with. So in addition, he says, to self-control, hang on to perseverance. Add to it perseverance. But then he didn't stop there. He says, and to perseverance, godliness. Godliness, which is a, a, a deep reverence for God. I just wonder how many of us honestly could say we live daily with a, an awe or live in awe of God. Now I love going down to the beach, being on the, on the and I, Jennifer took her parents down to the, I hope you went to the North Carolina beach. Maybe you went to the South Carolina, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Beach is a beach. But, but yeah, isn't it wonderful when you're walking along the, the beach and you look out across the massive expanse of that ocean and the waves are rolling in and the, the creatures of the sea, you know, uh, all around and, you, and the air. and uh, oh what, Man, it just makes you want to break out into singing how great thou art. Or, or as Jan and I recently had the privilege, thanks to you all, to go up to Blowing Rock and be in the midst of those beautiful mountains and see the majestic handiwork of God. Listen, you know, we don't have the privilege to go to the mountains all the time or to the beach all the time. Do you understand that in your part of God's world, you can still be in awe of God? Because He's always showing you things around you that declares His glory. Go out on a crisp, clear night and look up within the night sky and see the brilliant constellations and the stars and the planets and the moon and just say, oh, what an awesome God you are. But then you just consider the fact that God shaped and molded you in your mother's womb, covered you, and, and, and be able to say like the psalmist, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, therefore I will praise you. But do you live in a sense of awe? The apostle Paul in 1 Timothy in chapter 4 says bodily exercise profits a little but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that is now and the life that is to come. Live with the virtue of godliness with an awareness of God and your response. If you are living in the in an awe of God, in the presence of God and, and, and how holy He is and righteous and perfect He is and His grace and His mercy, let me tell you something, it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room to go out there and do seedy, immoral, inappropriate, unchristian things. So you see, godliness plays a key factor in this Life of, 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 of Christian virtues. But then he goes on to add to that. He says to godliness in verse 7, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. You know, it's interesting because if you go back a couple pages in, in 1 Peter, chapter 4, in verse 8, Peter also talks about that. He says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. He's talking to the body of Christ. And I pointed that out when we were back there in that chapter, in that verse. Brotherly kindness, 
ladies, that doesn't leave you out. It's just a generic term. You could say sisterly, but I don't even know if that's King James. But brotherly, sisterly, it's, it's the love that we should have for one another. It's the love that, that we as God's people should have for one another. The Apostle Paul picked up on that in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> he said, be you kindly affectionate one to another. Giving preference to one another. He says that's how Christians relate to one another. We, we, we are supposed to love one another. Didn't Jesus say in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you? He's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to his disciples. He says a new commandment I give unto you. This is after the first and greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second commandment, that you love your neighbor as yourself. He says and a new commandment I give unto you. My followers, my disciples, you shall love one another. You shall love one another as I have loved you. Didn't the Lord say in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends? Whew. And he said, that's how you are to love one another. Do you understand how absolutely devious and demonic and out of place Christians not loving one another is? And how God must look at that? And that's why Peter says, in addition to these other virtues, you make sure that you add brotherly kindness, love for one another. But then he goes on. And he says, and to brotherly kindness, love. Love. The world makes much of love. And I'm not opposed to love songs and love stories and Hallmark Channel and Things like that. You know, we all need a little bit of touch of romance from time to time. But, but God's love. The greatest love. The perfect love. He says to brotherly kindness. Love. That word agape. Talking about God's unselfish, unconditional love. For God so loved the world. That's what he's talking about. That we should have that kind of love for all people. You say, I can't love ISIS. Well, you know what? I understand where those sentiments could be generated. But you know what? God loves them. Do you understand that even in the ranks of that horrendous terrorist group called ISIS, God may have potential believers that He's waiting to draw to Christ just like He did the Saul of Tarsus. God loves them. Now we don't have to approve of them and we certainly don't want to support them and we should try our best to stop them in their acts of atrocity. But we are to love everybody. I don't know, some of you may remember when we had a church member. In fact, she lived right across from the fish camp. When we first organized Cornerstone, her house was right next door, Ann Phillips. She was a southern belle, if there ever was a southern belle. She could stretch any one single syllable word to three or four syllables. But boy, do we love Anne. And yet she didn't know a stranger. I, I'd just be amazed. We'd go to, you know, visitations, and there'd be masses of people there. You know, funeral visitations. And Anne walk up to people. She'd just walk up to them and say, excuse me, do, do I know you? <laughs> because she knew everybody, Really? But, but one of her favorite expressions, and I think it, it set her apart, 
And we'd always tease her. And you know everybody. You talk to anybody. And she's, I just love everybody. I just love everybody. And, and by cracky, can you say that in church? I, I have. <laughs> Deacons will see me after the service. But anyway, she did. She practiced what Peter's saying. Practice the love of God. Folks, you don't understand. There's some scowl-looking people out there that like, look like they'll bite your head off. They, you know, maybe act like they're, you know, they're a pit bull or something. But you know what they're missing? They're missing the love of God. They just need to know that somebody loves them. Would you dare to smile at them? Would you dare to say, have a good day? Would you dare to say, God bless you? Or go so far as to say, hey, has anybody told you lately, God loves you? Now, you, you may not get a Christian witness in, but that may be plant a seed. I'm just saying we are the instruments of God's love. Oh, i got to move along. Looking ahead to verse 8. As we talk about the believer's pursuit of the virtues of God. Look at verses 8 and 9. For if these things, what things? Verses 5 through 7. These virtues, these characteristics, these qualities. For if these things are yours and abound. Do you understand? That they, that they abound. You know, Jesus taught the parable in Matthew 13 of the soils, the, the sower. And there are different types of soil. Hard soil, thorny soil, you know, rocky soil. And then he talked about the soil that was rich and fertile. And, 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 and when the seeds hit it, it just bore, it bore forth lots of fruit. That's who we are. In the fertile soil of our faith, we should allow the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, to just grow us abundantly, and, and, and these virtues, these qualities that we just looked at would abound in you and me. He says, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we pursue these virtues with diligence, let me tell you something. One of the first benefits is that it enhances our spiritual fruitfulness. God loves fruit. I like fruit. I won't go into that, but I do. God likes fruit. That's what Jesus says, you know, he talked about it continuously. And, and, you know, here he says, you know, in verse 8, he's talking about you won't be barren. You won't be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. You'll be fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. In, in John's gospel, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, I'm the, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, he shall bring forth much fruit. The only way you can be fruitful is to abide in Christ. To follow Christ. To give your life to Christ. To follow him. To exercise diligently the faith that he's given to you. Jesus said, he went on to say in, in chapter eight, uh, verse 8 of chapter 15, he says, And herein is my Father, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Fruit was something the Lord looked for. He desired fruit in the life of his followers and, and he looks for it in, in you and me. Jesus told his disciples in that same chapter, verse 16, John 15, chapter, verse 16, he says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. That you may bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Let me ask you, how fruitful is your life in the eyes of God? As you look at these qualities, these virtues, let me ask you, how much of the fruit of these virtues is bursting forth from your life, your faith? That's what the Lord is looking for. Jesus, I said, uh, shared with you, taught that parable of the soils. But let me tell you something. The Lord supplies the means for us to be fruitful. He supplies the means for us to be productive. 
It's not like you got to work at it. You don't have to strive at it. It's not dependent upon your intellect. It's not dependent upon your resourcefulness. It's not dependent upon your personality. Let me tell you what it's dependent upon. If you want to be really fruitful for the Lord, depend upon the Lord. Open your heart up to the Lord. Let the Lord fill you with His Holy Spirit. Stay in the Word of God. It's not our effort that makes us fruitful, ladies and gentlemen. It's our willingness to walk daily by faith filled with the Spirit of God. In Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6, that prophet, God spoke through the prophet and said, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's how we will be fruitful for the Lord. That's how we will manifest these wonderful qualities in our life. It's daily dependent upon the Lord, looking to Him and trusting in Him. Not only does our diligence towards the virtues make us fruitful, but let me tell you something. It helps your vision. It helps your vision. Now, don't go throwing your glasses and your contacts away. I'm talking spiritually. In my last uh, visit to my eye doctor, I love my eye doctor. She's really good. She knows what she's doing. And she says, Hmm, Mr. Martin, I think I see some cataracts. She's from another culture. I I I see some cataracts. And I said, Oh, no. Doc, bring it to me. I'm going blind. Shall I run home to see my family? Yeah, because I, I have this stigma about cataracts. She said, "No, no, 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 no. It's so gradual. You just gradually will lose your vision." <laughs> Some of you have had cataract surgery. You understand this. It's not. It's not a major thing. But still, but what I'm trying to say is, when we allow sin to come into our lives, when we back off of our diligence in pursuing the Lord, when we don't exercise these virtues in our lives, let me tell you something. It becomes like a spiritual cataract. And ever so gradually, you can begin to lose sight of things that are very important for a child of God. I see it happen, ladies and gentlemen. I see Christians who drift. They let other things become priorities for them. They take their eyes off of the Lord. They begin to get out of the Word of God. They don't pray like they used to. Stop going to church. And all of a sudden, you, spiritual cloudiness what are the things that they lose sight of? They lose sight of the fact that they're followers of Jesus Christ. They lose fact of the fact that they're adopted children of God. They lose, fact, they lose sight of the fact that they're brothers in Christ together in the Lord. They lose sight of the fact that they're joint heirs with Jesus Christ and they have all the spiritual blessings of heaven. They lose sight of who they are. And they lose sight of what they have in Christ they lose sight of their salvation. They lose sight of their sanctification. They lose sight of their ultimate glorification. They lose sight of the divine provisions that God is making for them every day. They lose sight of the precious promises of God. And before you know it, they're living insecure, groping, testing this, testing that. And he says, oh, don't, don't. Don't be unfruitful. Don't. Fall away and be, find yourself being blind, if you will, towards the things of God. Clear vision strengthens the believer's assurance. When you stay in the Word of God and you pray on a regular basis and you're in touch with the Lord, you walk with the Lord, you confess in your sin on a regular basis and you're tuned into Him. Let me tell you something. Your vision, those cataracts, those spiritual cataracts begin to clear. Hallelujah. As you confess your sins and you turn back and make the Lord the priority of your life and you're doing the things that He wants you to do. You're in church. You're serving the Lord. You're studying the Word of God. You're praying regularly. Let me tell you something. Those spiritual cataracts are clearing up. 
I've heard people that had cataract surgery say, I can't believe it. The things I can see again. Hallelujah. You know, they're just excited. It's like they got new eyeballs. You know, I can, I can see roadsides again. I can see, um, you know, things, trees, leaves, birds, bees. Hallelujah. And when we get right with the Lord and we come back to the Lord and turn our hearts back over to Him and, and confess our sins, He clears up our spiritual vision. All of a sudden we begin to see the things of the world is not where we want to go. That's not the path we want to take. We understand and we see again who we are as children of God. We begin to see the things that we've been singing about, the glorious eternal rewards that await us as we go into heaven. Hallelujah. I must move on our We'll run out of time and I might get too excited. I believe what I'm preaching, y'all. <laughs> this is not just an exercise of a job description for me, I promise you. I get so excited I have to get up from my desk sometime and walk around. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Breaking to singing. Jan said, you hurt yourself up there? <laughs> no, dear, I'm singing. <laughs> Let's, let's wrap it up at verses 10 through 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, what? Verse 10. Yeah. It's there for some reason, right? Yeah. Everything he's just told us. He says, now, what I have just laid on you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore, here we go. Brethren, sisters, be even more diligent. Have we heard that word before? Sure we have, back in verse 5. He's telling you, don't just half-heartedly, lackadaisically. He says, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Be diligent in living the fruitful life because it gives us assurance that we are recipients of the salvation that God has given, and I emphasize, given to you and me. Be diligent in pursuing these things, he says, that we, if we are diligent to do so, we are given assurance that we are able to remain faithful in our walk with God. Do you see what he says there? Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Does that mean Peter is saying that you'll never sin? No. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible, praise the Lord. We will sin, even as believers, even with the best intentions. We will, we will miss the mark, we'll make mistakes, we'll lose sight of the Lord, we'll, we'll sin. That's why we confess our sin. But what Peter is saying here, if you are diligent... If the priority of your life is to live the Christian life and to be controlled by the Spirit of God and digging into the Word of God, he says, hallelujah, because the chances of you falling away. And there were Christians who were falling away in the early church on a regular basis. Getting their eyes off of the Lord, chasing after these false religions and false prophets and false teachers, and they fell back into a life of sin. And Peter says, if you want assurance to protect you from that, you just be diligent in doing these things. Not only diligent in living a fruitful life gives us assurance, but diligence in this life affords us blessings for eternity. Our salvation produces virtues that instill confidence in this life that we are already citizens of His eternal kingdom. 
I love John 10, 10 where Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Do you understand? You, if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit abides in you and you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, do you understand? You are not temporal. Oh, somebody can kill you and destroy your body, but let me tell you something, they cannot take your life. If you're truly a child of God, you will live on forever. You are living with eternal life. Do y'all understand that? Every day you get up and you breathe breath into your body. Listen, you are breathing as an eternal creature. And Jesus says, those that believe in me, even, the, even if he dies, he will live forever. And because of that, we ought to live with a confidence. I don't mean go out there and be cocky and say, go ahead, devil, take your best shot. Or go out and do something stupid. No, no. I'm talking though, don't live intimidated by the world. Don't live intimidated by the devil's crowd. Don't live intimidated by those who don't see the things that you see. You go ahead. You start swimming against the current. You keep your eyes on the Lord. Because he assures you in this life that you are not just somebody. You are God's child. I like that. You know, my dad and mom had 11 children and, you know, you kind of get lost in the crowd. Sometimes my mom would get mad, you know, at me usually. And, and she'd go down to the list of all my brothers. Glenn, uh, Leon, uh, Brady, uh, uh, you know what your name is. I said, Charlie. Yeah, you. <laughs> <But, laughs> Y'all wondering what happened. He's a middle child. Bless his heart. Okay. So where was I? God knows my name. Hallelujah. Oh, my mom knew my name. She loved me. Okay? I'm not saying... But I'm just saying... Don't let the world throw you that flippant thing of making you feel like you're insignificant. You're just another face on the planet. Nobody cares. You're just a number. Don't buy that malarkey because it's not true. You are a blood-bought child of God. You are a son and daughter of the living God. You are a joint heir in the kingdom of God. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. Amen? Hallelujah! That ought to put a pep in your step. Not only that, it gives us spiritual diligence that ensures our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You remember I told you when we began the second, the, the, the epistle, second Peter, unlike the first epistle, Peter, this is like second Timothy is to the apostle Paul. This is Peter's swan song. You know, Peter, you know, one of the differences, just a side note, one of the differences between the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, Paul lived with the hope of the rapture. He wrote about it in Thessalonians. That's what we read in our responsive reading. He lived thinking any day, and it could have, and it can happen today, any day. The Lord, trump sound, archangel, archangel shouts, and, and here we go. Paul lived with that, thinking it could happen. In my lifetime. And you and I, we have that same promise. It could happen today, it could happen tomorrow. There goes that thing. But anyway, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> not so with the Apostle Peter. <gasps> Peter never lived with the hope of the rapture. Why? Because John chapter 21, Jesus had already told him, Buddy, You'll serve me, and you'll be very important in the life of the church. But you will die. 
and you will be martyred. So Peter knew that. And at this point, Peter is very keenly aware that his days are drawing very near. That his time is coming. So when he writes verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter was writing to these Christians and say, You probably won't see me again. And could be very soon you'll get word that old Peter has been crucified. But don't you worry. Don't you grieve needlessly for me. Because the same assurance that has given me the confidence to live victoriously every day gives me the confidence to face death and know that this is just a step over into the glorious gates of the eternal kingdom of God. And do you understand? You and I can live with that same wonderful assurance. We can live every day confident of knowing that we belong to the God. To God, We're children of God. He supplied all of our needs. He's going to see us through. But let me tell you something. You don't have to fear death. I don't fear death. Because death is just a pathway into the gateway of heaven where we'll be in the presence of the Lord forever. Amen? That's why we were singing when we all get to heaven. And I hope all of us will be there. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. Ha! We'll sing and shout the victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Living the Christian life diligently is what it's all about.